Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nucleus Investment Insights. We have a special guest this week in Christopher Joy. Chris is founder and co-chief investment officer of fixed income specialist investment house, Coolabar Capital, and a contributing editor of the Australian Financial Review. Previously working for Goldman Sachs in London and Sydney, the Reserve Bank of Australia, and was the founder of an award-winning research and investment group, Rismark International, Chris has now turned his attention to creating alpha through fixed income investments and is a leading commentator on the state and future of global bond markets. I'll hand over to Damien to uh, run us through the next yeah, bit. Yeah, sure. So, look, we wanted to get Chris on here. Um, he is a major fund manager within Australia, particularly in the, uh, in the fixed income market. And, what, and he's very outspoken on a number of uh, his views on um, anything from uh, fixed and floating rates, uh, hybrids. Uh, he's got a, a number of uh, things he's written about uh, the LIC market, the LIT, the listed investment trusts. Um, and we just thought, uh, you know, we, we agree on, on a number of things with Chris and we disagree on a number of others. And we thought it was a great opportunity to, uh, to get someone on board of his caliber to, uh, to discuss some of these issues. Absolutely. And a quick reminder before we get started to subscribe on YouTube and click the notification bell to be notified when we go live or have a new webinar to watch. And fo- feel free to follow us on your preferred podcast platform. We hope you enjoy. Today on the show, we have founder and co-chief investment officer of fixed income specialist Coolabar Capital and contributing editor of the Australian Financial Review, Christopher Joy. Welcome to Nicholas Investment Insights. Hey, guys. Now, Chris, just to get the ball rolling, if you wouldn't mind providing just a bit of a brief background on yourself and, of course, Coolabar Capital. Yeah, sure. Happy to do so. Um, what is there to say? Uh, probably not that much. Um we run uh, about four and a half billion in global fixed interest. Uh, we're an active credit manager, so I have a team of <clears throat> about twenty-three staff, uh, five portfolio managers, eleven analysts. Most of our guys are technicians or quants. So I think we have three PhDs, a lot of engineers, um, an astrophysicist, and a bunch of other smart dudes. Uh, and we specialize in basically generating what we call is credit alpha. And that means we're basically uh, trying to buy and sell bonds where we capture capital gains <clears throat> that augment the yield on the bond or the interest paid on the bond. And so in fixed income, anyone can get interest and you can get more interest by taking more risk. We tend to focus on very high-grade credit. Um, typically double A-rated bonds that are very liquid that actually have very low interest rates. But we generate quite significant capital gains through our um, you know, active uh, trading process, and we are very active. So in January, for example, uh, we bought and sold $2.2 billion worth of bonds globally um, on that $4.5 billion of fund. Wow. And, and so, what would your average turnover in a year be? Is that, I'm assuming that that was that was a bit special, a bit of a special month, was it? So, are you sort of aiming at two or three hundred percent turnover? Um, yeah, that was an unusually active month. But we've, I think, as our team has grown. So, when I started the business uh, eight years ago, you know, there was two PMs and two part-time analysts. And as I mentioned, we're now five PMs and eleven analysts. Um, you know, we started with two quant models. We've now got more than thirty quant models. And we revalue every bond on earth um, <clears throat> every minute of the day, and we're looking for those cheap bonds, much like a, a stock 
manager would or an equity guy would. Uh, we want to buy them cheap, get the capital gain as the price appreciates and then move on. Uh, we generally don't take any interest rate risk or liquidity risk uh, or much credit risk. The turnover ratio is an interesting one um, because as we've become bigger, we've become more active and our hit rates have increased um, <clears throat> over time. So uh, typically our turnover is around 150 200% per annum, but um, we're really, really quite effective at minimizing our transaction costs. So there's something called RG97, uh, which for Insta managers like ourselves, our clients require us to quantify um, annually what is the bid offer cost we uh, incur when we cross spreads and what is the brokerage we incur. So, you know, as you guys know, if you're a very active manager, you can incur a lot of transaction costs. But on our, um, uh, on our core portfolios, our RG97 costs last year were about 10 basis points. Um, so mm. very, very, very small. Um, I think our turnover ratio will increase, though. I think January is a bit of a harbinger uh, of the future, and, and we're very focused on velocity. Um, so, yeah, which makes us very different because your typical stylized bond manager, they hold to maturity. You know, the simple uh, approach in fixed income, particularly in Australia, which is very unsophisticated, is I'm a hold to maturity guy. I'll have 200, 500, 1,000 bonds. They're not very focused on the actual credit risk because how can you cover <clears throat> 500 different names uh, or 500 different securities? And they, they, because there's no real credit research process, they just diversify um, in order to compensate for that. Uh, mm-hmm. They take that diversification to an extreme. And they're not looking for alpha or capital gains. You know, capital gains in fixed income is a bit of a, uh, well, it's not spoken about a great deal unless you're taking duration risk, which we don't do. Um, and what, what they do is you will get the yield less uh, the fees. So simple bond math is you'll get a, you know the, the, the portfolio weighted average yield less its fees. Uh, and if you want more yield, you take more liquidity risk or you take more credit default risk or you take more interest rate duration risk. And we minimize those what we call betas and we just focus on capital gains or what we call mispricing alpha. And so are you sh- shorting then as well within that? Yeah, we run both long-only portfolios and both long-short portfolios. But what we focus on, again, in fixed income, um, in Australia and and I guess to a slightly lesser extent around the world, most fixed income managers um, focus on trying to punt interest rates and use a lot of derivatives, whereas we are focusing on buying and selling physical bonds. So corporate bonds, financial bonds, we actually don't hold much in the way of corporates because they tend to be very, very expensive. We hold much more financials. Um, and we don't punt interest rates. Uh, we do hedge interest rate risk and we hedge currency risk, so we'll hedge a lot of risk. But uh, what we won't do is uh, try and second-guess what the RBA is going to do or the Fed or the ECB or the BOJ. It's super easy to sound smart talking about you know GDP, jobs, inflation, the RBA, and then saying, oh, I've got a Bloomberg terminal. And I have an interest rate futures account, and I'm betting on a you know an RBA cut later in the year, which isn't fully priced. I mean that that sounds intelligent, but what we know from our empirical research is that the interest rate market and the currency market are two of the most efficient asset classes on earth. And I don't know an interest rate trader that has consistently beaten the market or generated alpha over any long period of time. They all blow up. It tends to be very highly levered, and there's too much inside information. Those markets are very very porous and. You know, the Chinese and the Russians are hacking everyone um, and they're trying to get asymmetric information. 
Yeah, and, and and as you said, like most of these movements, though, as well for for the average person, if if you're if like we run, um, say we run a lot of government bonds within our portfolios, but the net effect is, you know, if interest rates, if you get a cut that wasn't expected or a rate that rose that wasn't expected, you know, we're talking about less than a percent movement in terms of a, a bond, the underlying, you need to get in and use leverage and use longs and shorts to actually really make, like I guess that's what I'm saying is the risk The risk gets taken when you're going long, short, and when you're taking leverage, not as much when you're, you're just in, if you just own a bond within your portfolio, it's actually not very risky from that perspective. Would you, would you say that? I probably um, wouldn't agree with that, um, to be yeah. really frank. I would... Uh, there's a, a hell of a lot of risk in bond markets. So, like, we can just talk about there's many different markets in bond markets. But let's. Uh, start- yeah, sorry, I'm talking government bonds, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, let's talk about government bonds uh, to begin yep. with. Um, so, the biggest risk in government bond markets is not well understood is duration risk. Uh, and I'll explain what I mean. I know you guys know that, but for people who mm. don't know what duration is, I can explain that. So, when you buy government bonds, it's like, oh, wow, these are AAA rated. They're issued by the Aussie government. They're never going to default. That's generally fine as a proposition. So government bonds have extremely low default risk, right? Um, therefore, they have no really very little credit risk. However, your typical five or ten year government bond um, is uh, has a fixed rate of interest rather than floating. And I know you guys wanted to talk about this. Um, yeah, what, what that means is um, the best way to conceptualize that is like a home loan. So, or, or let's let's take a, a term deposit. So, if you have a five-year fixed term deposit and the RBA starts increasing rates, chances are you will lose out. Um, as in, you'll get much better five-year TD rates than what you could get um, when you fixed it. So, in two thousand eight, you could get five-year TD rates around eight percent, I think. Um, if you fixed it uh, in two thousand eight, and the RBA cut rates, you won because you locked in that interest rate at eight. But if you fixed for a five-year TD today, and let's just say the cash rate, which is 0.75, went to three, um, then you get murdered on your TD. You don't have a loss, but you've, your opportunity cost is a much lower rate of interest. The problem in the bond market is that um, when you fix your rate of interest, you're exposed to huge interest rate risk. And interest rate risk is actually your biggest source of loss in fixed income. Um, uh, most of the time, credit risk, um, particularly in investment-grade markets, is is pretty negligible and isn't a huge source of isn't a huge source of volatility. Um, and this is really manifest by this analysis uh, that we sometimes show people where if you compare the volatility of the ASX hybrid market, you know, hybrids, uh, uh, major bank hybrids are at a triple B minus, right on the cusp of investment grade. And up until late last year, they were actually rated double B plus, which means they were high yield or sub-investment grade or junk, right? So, you know, that's uh, the riskier end of the fixed income spectrum. But the return volatility of the hybrid market over the last um, uh, over the last say five or ten years has been about two to three percent per annum, and the return volatility on a portfolio of hybrids has actually been less than the return volatility on a portfolio of AAA rated Aussie government bonds. And when you tell people that that government bonds have actually been riskier than hybrids in a um, probability of loss or return volatility sense, you know the eyebrows will raise. But that's because there's two completely different risks. Hybrids are floating rate, so there's zero interest rate risk, but you've got that credit risk, right? Mm. A bit, effectively, a bit of, also a bit of what we would call equity beta. With government bonds, you've got no credit risk, but you've got boatloads of, um, of uh, interest rate risk. So one of the main benchmarks in Australia for bonds is something called the Composite Bond Index, and that's mainly made up of government bonds, about 80% government bonds. And that fell in value in December 1.64%. In the month, 
Now, if you hold a AAA you know, government bond portfolio and your bonds fall 1.64%, that's a pretty big fall. It was actually the biggest fall since September 1994. Um, in January, it rose 2.33%. So you're down 1.6% in December, you're up 2.3% in January. That's a hell of a lot of volatility. And it's got nothing to do with the fact that you know there's any credit risk there. It's got everything to do with the fact that the whole world is uh, oscillating very aggressively on its interest rate expectations. Um, so we, we kind of went off on a digression there, but no, no. But actually, I think that's a I think that's a val- that's a that's a very interesting point. And I think it shows the difference between a somebody who's trading it and somebody who's bought, hold to maturity. Because if if I turn to a um, you know your average retail uh, customer and say, okay, I've got a I've got a, flo- a floating rate um, bond and maybe a portfolio of floating rate bonds, so you know that the credit risk on that is very low, and I'm going to compare that to buying a, a long dated government bond. To me, the long-dated government bond, if you're holding these things to maturity, is has got much lower risk. Yes, the price will will will, volat- will be vol- more volatile and will bounce around from month to month. But I know right now what you're going to get. Like I know if I buy a um, a ten-year government bond, you're going to get two dollars a year and paid in you know a dollar every six months, and at the end of it, you're getting a hundred dollars. There's no there's there's no credit risk. There's no cash flow risk. There's nothing to that. Like if you're sitting without in your portfolio and you're living off that that interest, you know what you're getting. Whereas if I give you a hybrid with a floating rate, um, I'm saying, yeah, you buy it today, you're getting $100 at the end of at the end of the period in 10 years' time, but I don't know what your interest rate's going to be. It could be lower, it could be higher, you know, you could, you know, it could go to zero or close to zero, you know, as we've seen, you know, around countries in the world. So I guess what I'm saying is you're, you're absolutely right. There's more price risk in the, in the fixed ones, but I would argue that's only because um, – in, in the floating rates, you're taking interest rate risk. You're taking the you're, you're, you've got income risk, but very low price risk. Whereas in the fixed ones, you've got price risk, but very low, but effectively no income risk. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think this is a key point you've touched on, um, which really defines, I think, uh, you know, differences in investor clientele's. So you know, folks um, often make that comment that you made that well, if I'm a hold to maturity bond investor. Yes, I get some volatility along the way, but I always know if I'm in government bonds, uh, I'll get paid at the end of the period. The um, that that sort of framework is is particularly powerful for uh, investors who don't have to mark to market their portfolios. So, for example, um, you know banks and some banks uh, and uh, some types of investors uh, when they hold government bonds or other types of uh, assets. They can treat them on a hold to maturity basis um, because they're not traded and they don't actually have to mark them to market. Uh, so it's perfect because when you don't mark them to market, you actually don't even see that volatility. The most extreme example of that is actually a term deposit or a, a bank deposit. Not many people realize that <clears throat> bank deposits, it, all bank deposits have risk. It's just not marked to market. So I own bonds issued by CBA, covered bonds, which actually in the capital structure of CBA are safer than CBA bank deposits. Um, particularly if you're above the government guarantee of $250,000. Um, so a lot of folks are above that government guarantee, not everyone. Apologies if you're not. Um, but if you're above that government guarantee and you're cash with CBA, you're taking pure CBA credit risk. And that's marked to market every second of the day by the global um, investment world. Um, and we we own AAA-rated CBA-covered bonds that actually are safer than those deposits, but they move around in value because the world's repricing CBA risk. Um, 
With your cash, on the other hand, you treat it as a whole to maturity investment. We don't revalue it. There's no rhyme or reason for that. We just don't. We assume it's risk-free. It's actually not risk-free. Um, but were you to mark to market that cash, you'd start to see that volatility. So coming back to government bonds, <clears throat> I think in May, in the year to May 2018, a uh, portfolio of AAA-rated Aussie government bonds had a negative return. So um, so if you don't care about your you know 12-month returns and you, you've got money in government bonds and um, and you know you've got a minus, let's say, 0.5% return, you've earned nothing um, because there was an increase in yields and you've got that price risk and you can ignore volatility and you don't need liquidity, so you're never going to redeem your money, um, then I agree with you, like 100% you hold to maturity and there's no risk. Um, mm. If, on the other hand, you know you might want to take your money out at some point in time and you are affected by sequencing risk and mark-to-market risk, then that volatility is actually real because you may not be able to wait another you know, five years to get repaid at par. Um, and it's just, you know, I, I think that for me, the attraction of government bonds historically, and particularly since the GFC, has been the negative correlation with equities. So they've been a really good equity hedge um, in a lot of circumstances, basically when you know the world is going... Um, to hell in a handbasket, a lot of folks will jump into government bonds uh, as a safe harbour. And there's been quite a strong negative correlation between uh, bonds and equities um, in those circumstances where government bond prices have jumped up, yields have fallen, and you've got the benefit of that volatility on the upside. Um, The problem with that argument is if you look at the last 100 years of data, and we've done that uh, here in Australia and, and Milliman's done the same thing and Goldman Sachs has done in the US. The correlation between fixed rate government bonds and equities has actually been positive over the long term. And it really depends on whether you're in a disinflationary or deflationary period or an inflationary period. If you've had a deflationary shock like the GFC, basically um, people think interest rates are going down, therefore you know, government bond prices go up and you make a mozza. Um, so I run a long duration portfolio for super funds and because – um, that, that invests in that composite, that invests in uh, assets that are similar to that composite bond index I mentioned before. And in the last twelve months before fees, that was up eleven and a half percent. The index was up, um, actually, sorry, the last twelve months before fees was up thirteen point two percent, and the index was up, I think, nine point one. Um, just as a writer here, this is not available to the public. It's not available to retail investors, and the fee terms are confidential, so we actually can't quote a net number. Um, but you know, knock fifty to one hundred basis points off off the return if you want to think about a net number. Uh, so that that thirteen point two percent was delivered on a portfolio where the yield was probably two to three, um, and that was all about you know basically over the last twelve months there have been whether it's Brexit, trade, a whole bunch of other circumstances. Uh, where uh, you know Fed QE, ECB QE, RBA rate cuts, um, people think yields are going down, and so we've had uh, the benefit of that high duration plus our credit alpha. Um, so I think government bonds have a really, really valuable rate, uh, role to play in portfolios. You've just got to be kind of cognizant of the fact that if you if you're not hold to maturity, like like you suggested, um, mm. then you could have a period where over a one year interval, you've actually got a loss on that government bond portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess we the way we tend to tend to treat it is we've sort of got a a a a bond ladder so to speak. This sort of like you you go here's a, here's our, our our part of the portfolio that's there as a as a hedge on the rest of your portfolio and as a, as a steady income part. And then there's, all, there's then there's a trading part of it where we sort of go okay, well, you know, if you want to go longer duration or, or shorter duration, there's a there's a part on top of that. But let's um so but I guess the that sort of comes back to that key point though, isn't it? Is it if 
if inflation, and that's our that's our key enemy there, we, as long as we're in a disinflation period, you're fine. Um, if inflation sort of picks up, uh, then that's when when uh, fixed duration bonds are going to get murdered. Um, are you seeing any signs, I guess, globally or, or, or you know around that? Or what are, you, what are your views on inflation? Yeah, so um, I was actually speaking at a conference about this yesterday, and um, you might hear a little bit of tapping in the background. But if I just uh, whack into Google, if I pull up the uh, US, uh, pull up the US wages data, um, and uh, just one second, here we go. So. Um, Basically, what you see is that since 2010, probably actually since 2012, um, there has been a very consistent uptrend in US wages growth. But yeah, so we've seen the short stroke summary is that central banks, and Reinhardt actually commented on this recently, um, a, a US academic, central banks used to use interest rate policy and the thing we call quantitative easing or QE, which is just a, a central bank buying bonds and buying other assets. Um, again, on that note, yesterday somebody said to me that it is amazing to think that one of the biggest holders of US tech stocks is the uh, Swiss central bank. Unbelievable. Yes. Um, but um, but central banks used to engage in what we call counter-cyclical monetary policy. So they cut rates or lift rates to deal with short-term problems, to help smooth the business cycle. And we've moved into a world where the central bankers are now saying, no, 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 we actually want to completely control the business cycle. We don't want to have busts. We only want to have booms. And we're going to do everything humanly possible to try and optimize the short term, buggering the long-term consequences. And that's why we have many people have commented that who would have thought that you'd have a 1.5% Fed cash rate with 3.7% unemployment in the United States, you know, the lowest jobless rate in you know, over half a century or thereabouts and very, very strong employment growth. And what we're seeing in the US, if you look at US average hourly earnings, um, it's very consistent, guys, that there's been an uptrend in average hourly earnings um, for the best part of uh, six to eight years. And I don't think that's going to stop. And and it was actually uh, manifest most clearly in 2018 where there was a wage upside wage surprise in the US in February and October and equities got belted. They fell 10% um, because... Long-term government bond yields jumped up. Um, so we had the 10-year US government bond yield popping through 3.2%. And that's also why that 12-month uh, uh, return for government bonds at one point in 2018 was negative because of the big jump in long-term yields. Um, and so, yeah, I think we're moving into an inflationary world. I do not believe this BS about deflation. Uh, we have some deflationary influences. So clearly technology is highly deflationary. But what I think sometimes people forget is that technology is what an economist would call a level effect, not a growth effect. So let's think about uh, the coronavirus. You know, we're hearing a lot of stories in China of difficulties folks are having producing stuff because obviously they're not working. And what that's led to is a lot of price inflation in China, but that's a one-off impact, right? When people go back to work, prices will fall back down. So it's like a pig through a python. And technology is the same. So, you know, um, if Apple can produce much cheaper iPhones and cut the cost from, say, 700 bucks to 200 bucks, well, that'll be very deflationary. But it's a one-off shock. It can't continue cutting the cost down to zero. Um, and so 
we've had these countervailing influences. On the one hand, um, we have unemployment rates around the world falling like a stone. So, you know, the unemployment rate in the UK, amazingly, is only 3.9%. Here in Australia, it's 5.1%, historically very low. And likely, uh, if the RBA keeps on cutting or if we get more fiscal stimulus to continue trending lower, it's only 4.0% in New Zealand. Um, yep. Now, what, what about the under underemployment side? I guess that's the, that's the, the counter argument to to the unemployment side is saying there's still a significant underemployment, and especially I guess the the gig economy. You know, every second Uber driver I think seems to be transitioning from one job to the next job, and so it's whether that's the the unemployment rate is isn't really capturing what it used to capture. Yeah, I think I think that's a really um, valid observation that we've got a lot of uh, what you might call frictional unemployment um, as. Economies are changing uh, so strikingly, and you've got a lot of disruption through Uberization and so on and so forth. You're going to have a lot of displaced workers that then need over time to reskill or transition to new jobs or, or never get a job. Um, what is also interesting is we're seeing, and this has been a hypothesis, hypothesis of ours for quite some time, is we're seeing um, uh, some upward trend in participation rates. So as uh, life expectancy elongates as you have the rise of female participation in two-income households. Uh, we've seen record labour force participation in Australia, which has actually kept the unemployment rate high. If if you held the participation rate, I think um, at its late 2017 level, the jobless rate in Australia, I think, would be below 4%. Um, but so on the one hand, you've got um, a lot of people looking for work, and we're actually now seeing a recovery in the participation rate in the US, and that underemployment um, or that long-term unemployment that was a function of um, uh, you know, the, the GFC and the damage wrought by the GF, GFC in the US coupled with um, issues that I think younger Americans have with prescription drugs, um, there are some tentative signs that that might be reversing out. But, but there's... Um, no doubt, I think what really you're talking about um, in reference to that underemployment dynamic is the fact that wage growth hasn't been as strong as people would expect at these levels of unemployment, and that is 100% correct. So normally, if you said the US unemployment rate is 3.7%, yeah, you know, year on year, uh, average hourly earnings are sitting around 3%. Uh, Pre-GFC, they peaked at 3.6%. Um, but pre-GFC, the unemployment rate was higher. So you'd expect more wage growth in the US. What we're seeing is a trend increase really very clearly uh, since circa, you know, somewhere between 2010, it troughed in 2010, and it started clearly increasing in 2012 uh, through to 2013, and it started increasing quite sharply in 2018. It sort of tapered off a little bit, potentially as a function of um, the trade war. Um, and, and, and probably stimulus from tax cuts. Correct. Um, but we're not seeing, you know, economists call something, they, they refer to the NIRU, which is the non-accelerating, un, un, uh, sorry, uh, yeah. uh, the non-accelerating non inflation rate of unemployment. Uh, and uh, and they used to, and that that is basically the level of the unemployment rate where you start to see wage pressures emerge. And the Treasury and the RBA used to think it was around 5%. They're now saying it's 4 to 4.5%. And, and oh, you know, I was with the RBA a couple of weeks ago and they said, you know, um, the Fed used to think the Nairu was around four and a half. We've got circa three and a half percent unemployment in the US and still no significant wage pressure. So I think the inflation story is a three to 10 year story. I think it's coming. And I think that if the central banks, so what the central banks have done by cutting interest rates to all time lows and by buying um, assets like they've never before bought and expanding radically their balance sheets, what they're doing is they're disintermediating markets and they're creating huge asset price inflation. 
Um, they're creating a lot of artificial economic growth. They're creating a lot of artificial jobs growth. That's why the jobs jobs rates have fallen um, you know, very, very dramatically. And they're, they're closing up the slack in economies and they're closing up what we call the output gap. And that means that eventually they will also manufacture inflation. Um, when that time comes, I think it will pose profound portfolio construction problems for investors. And you really need to, our view is you really need to have a portfolio that can weather a much higher inflationary world well. And I think you can do that through floating rate assets and through um, highly liquid assets. And, and so along your inflation outlook, so how, how, do you, how does Japan sort of fit into that, that story? So it sounds as if, you know, Japan's done a lot of these things already and never really managed to, to generate inflation. What, what do you guys put down the, is it, is it a demographic issue that, that you put that down to? Or is it, what's the, I guess, what, what's the difference in that it's going to work, this is going to work for Western economies where it didn't work for Japan? Um, yeah, so the Japan case study is often rolled out by doomsayers and bears as, uh, as you say, it kind of didn't work in Japan, so why would it work here? Um, mm. And I think you also pointed to the answer, which is demographics. I mean, Japan has had a negative population growth rate since the early 2000s, and the Japanese government forecasts that its population uh, will shrink by 25% by you know, 2060. And um, so when you have an economy where your population is shrinking, it is almost impossible to get growth. And it's also almost impossible to get inflation. Uh, you almost have to have deflation. Think about what it does to house prices. Now, if you've got 100 million people and it's going to 80 million people, you can have 20 million um, you know, less folks uh, wanting to buy homes and it's just massively deflationary. So the problem of Japan through the 1990s and 2000s has been this um, massive uh, demographic drag on growth. We don't have that in other developed economies. We do have it absolutely in. We do it in Europe. <laughs> we have it in, in, in Europe and in, in, in China potentially, depending on what it does on immigration. Um, one of the unusual features of the Japanese story is also it. You know, without I love you know any Japanese listeners. I love Japan. I love traveling to Tokyo, uh, and then the nicest people in the world. But there is a view that it's a very xenophobic society. And Japan has really struggled with any form of immigration, which has accentuated its problems with uh, what we would call family fecundity, or the you know effectively the organic uh, you know uh, population growth rate. Um, that is how much we're reproducing. Uh, in Australia and the US, very different story, right? In Australia, we've got very strong population growth. Um, you know, we're forecast to have forty million people living here. Um, you know, within our lifetimes. Uh, and in the US, you've also got very, very healthy population growth uh, fueled in Australia and the US also by obviously very strong immigration. So I think you can get inflation in um, developed economies where you have uh, strong population growth. I think in China, the rise of the middle income households in China and the aging of the population is going to create a lot of wage inflation because the aging of the population will um, basically uh, crush labour supply. Um, and it'll put a, lot of, put a lot of pressure on the wages of that much uh, smaller uh, uh, amount of labour that is available to the economy. And then <clears throat> the increase uh, in uh, incomes in China is obviously going to uh, or has flowed through to much higher wage demands. Um, so I think that that with the whole world focused on creating inflation, that's exactly what we're going to get eventually. In the meantime, um, I think you want to ride risk, and that's certainly our position in our portfolio. So. It's not like you want to kind of go to cash and, and gold um, or, you know, say floating rate 
government bonds and gold. Um, I think you you really want to uh, understand that this could take a very very long time to materialize. Um, nobody knows when, but uh, you know I'd say a three to ten year time horizon. Um, the Fed has also said that when we get higher inflation, they're going to run a long period of above trend inflation. So I think that it's not immediately obvious that higher inflation will be catastrophic for financial markets. But I think in the end, the end game is that this is, you know, the idea of the central banks buying all the assets to artificially boost uh, their prices. And the idea that central banks think that the right cost of capital is basically zero um, is completely unsustainable. And at some point in time, we have to have a mean reversion or a normalization or an unwinding of those imbalances. Uh, at some point in time, we need more normal cost of capital, more normal hurdle rates, more normal discount rates, which affect the valuation of all assets, because we need a discount rate to work out what is the present value of the cash flows of property, private equity, equities. And when that happens, um, I think the only thing that can force that is inflation. I think until we see the inflation, everyone's going to be doing more and more QE and more, more and more uh, monetary debasement. And um, but when that Actually, sorry, before we get too far into that, can I just jump back for a sec to to the wage inflation part and the immigration? So some of the um, th- there's a number of people who are suggesting that. Because Australia is running such large levels of immigration, that's actually uh, that's actually part of the reason for having low low wages. Because we bring in um, you know a lot of students in particular, and, and their wages are quite low, and that means we can we can hire new people at you know somebody wants a wage rise, we're just okay, let's go get another graduate and train them up, and and that's actually keeping it. So I guess that sort of doesn't quite gel with with what you're saying about um, immigration driving inflation. Um. Immigration will drive population growth, which will drive economic growth. Um, and you know, I'm a huge fan of immigration. I think immigration um, is uh, probably deflationary for wages, um, insofar as uh, if you're improving uh, immigrants, you know, it's economically or empirically shown are more productive. They tend to be younger. Um, you only need to look at the rich list to see the number of first and second generation migrants um, who, who have been very, very successful in Australia. Um, mm. I'm not calling for a wage price spiral in Australia, to be clear, in the short term. I've mm. said very clearly this is a three to 10-year dynamic. Um, yep. so yeah, sure, on a partial equilibrium basis, if you ask me what's the impact of an influx of or a significant increase in immigration, um, yeah. Yeah, that should absolutely be deflationary for wages because you're with finite labour demand, you're increasing labour supply, and, and so that kind of creates more competition. So, yeah, yeah, don't disagree. I said, yeah. I guess my point is that when the central banks are willing to cut cash rates to zero, the central banks are willing to crowd out the private sector by buying all the government bonds and corporate bonds and equities, um, and the central banks are willing to create a lot of artificial economic growth, which is the reason the jobless rate in the UK is 3.9%. The reason the jobless rate in the US is 3.7%. The reason the jobless rate in New Zealand is 4.0% is because there's been artificial economic growth that has created artificial labour demand, right, that has... Yep. Um, that has closed up those output gaps. And the more that happens, eventually wage inflation will come. And what you only need to Google US average hourly earnings, right, and hit images, and you can see all the charts that show very, very clearly wages growth is almost back to pre-GFC levels in the US. And the US is kind of leading the global economy in all of this. And so, you know, it peaked, I think, in February 2019, US wages growth peaked at 3.4%. The peak mm. before the GFC was 3.6%. Now, the trade wars then uh, and, and a few other events kind of uh, stymied that temporarily. But since that time, the Fed's cut three times. Uh, yeah. Since that time, the Fed started QE again. So more- and, and I'd argue to you that, I'd argue to you that the, um, uh, the, 
that because they're running some of the largest fiscal deficits in the world, that's actually probably doing just as much. I'd say even more. Uh, you know, it's that part about if you can get governments running these big fiscal deficits to actually pump some more money in, that's what'll get demand Correct. in the economy. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. And then probably, and it looks like the US will go again. I'd say, I'd say, you know, regardless of whether it's Trump or Sanders or whoever gets in, it looks like you know bigger deficits is 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 there for the next four years as well. Chris, just a quick one, actually, just while we're talking about expanding uh, government balance sheets and, and um, false economies in a sense, or zo- potentially zombie uh, sort of style economies, um, does this sort of factor into the way you think about corporate debt? Hundred percent. Like, yep. so we um, we we actually track real time uh, the. Uh, we have uh, our quantitative crosshairs zeroed in very precisely on the proportion of zombies that exist on the ASX. And while we can't nuke those bastards, we uh, we definitely want to uh, avoid them like the plague. Yeah. You don't want to be yeah. you don't want to be eaten up by those zombies. So um, you know we estimate right now that about fifteen percent of all ASX ASX stocks are zombies. And what the technical difference? And, and what, sorry, compare that to global. What's your global number? Uh, globally, it's more around twenty to thirty percent. So it's not quite yep. as bad in Australia. I mean, Australia's had much higher interest rates for a long time. Hmm. <clears throat> Australia, we did a bit of QE during the GFC, but we really haven't had QE here either, um, to the same extent you send it overseas. And so we haven't had the the uh, the central bank fabricating growth as much as we have had elsewhere. Although we are obviously a, yet, yeah, <laughs> yet, yeah, 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 right. We're, we're a small open economy, and um, you know that's uh, you know we're we're, we're um, a pimple on the uh, ass of the global elephant. So coming back to the zombies and corporate debt, um, the Bank for International Settlements defines a zombie as a company that's paying 100% of more of its earnings before interest and tax um, to service the interest on its debt. Hmm. And what that means is that if there was an increase in, in the interest on that debt, then you know they wouldn't be able to service it, um, all things being equal, and they'd be trading insolvent. And so about 15% of ASX stocks classify uh, or uh, fall into that camp, 20 to 30% overseas. And it's rising very clearly. If I click on my quant lab right now, which I'll do, um, and I'll just bring up our latest um, zombie. So what, what, so what proportion of the ASX do you think the bulk of this zombie debt sits or is it sort of fairly evenly spread? Um, listen, we're not equity investors uh, yep. and there's a lot of companies that, that fall into this cohort. I wouldn't want to... Okay. I, we, I mean, we have obviously all the individual entities. Um, yeah. We haven't looked for any uh, industry-level concentrations because we're not really interested in that. Um, yep. But but just to give you a sense, like our estimate of the number of ASX zombies was below 10% in 2010, and it's now uh, over 15% and rising pretty rapidly. Um, and and, and so- that was actually sort of leading into a question before I was going to ask about. Before you go, whole- you're going to, oh, sorry, yep. you wanted me to talk about corporate debt, so I just didn't finish that yep. off. So, so what that means is, um, firstly, it, it gives one pause, and and if your fixed income fund manager isn't doing real time quant analysis on uh, the proliferation of the zombie corporate hordes, then um, you know I guess you should revisit your decisions. Um, but the other thing that's really worrying about corporate bonds is when you look at credit spreads on corporate bonds today, they are actually uh, inside or lower than what you were earning at the height height of the the bubble uh, immediately before the global financial crisis. So I've actually got a a chart and a table I'm looking at right now, and we obviously track this information real time as well because we're probably the most active trader of um, Aussie bonds, uh, certainly in Australia, if not in the world. 
And you know, on triple B corporate bonds, so investment grade uh, in the US, you're being paid 129 over cash today in basis points terms. So that's 1.29% over cash. In 2007, you're earning 1.62% over cash. So spread on triple B bonds are actually lower than what you got in 07. If you look at double A bonds, uh, you, today you're paying, paying paid 54 over cash. In 2007, you're paid 72 over cash. A-rated bonds, you're earning 77 over cash. Today, no, back in 07, 95 over cash. The worst um, or one of the most worrying developments is in the high yield market. And these are bonds that are rated less than triple B. So double BB, triple C, and uh, the riskiest bonds with the highest default risks. And what we see there is in the US high yield market, which a lot of Australian retail investors are diving into right now, because there are a lot of global managers coming to Australia offering <coughs> global high yield. Um, you know, high yield bond spreads in the US right now are 189 over cash, whereas in 07, you're getting 220 over cash. What's worrying is that US, <laughs> US corporate debt today is higher than it was in 07. So you're getting uh, less compensation for credit risk with more risk. Um, and obviously, you've also got uh, overlaid on top of this the rise of the zombie companies. Um, we're seeing a surge in subprime corporate lending in the so-called leverage loan market. These are basically companies that can't get debt from banks or the investment grade market. Uh, we're seeing a surge in what is known as covenant light lending. So it's basically like lending to businesses <clears throat> um, on terms that are increasingly favourable, much like we saw the relaxation in credit standards in the residential mortgage market prior to the GFC. Um, and we're also seeing, <clears throat> which is very worrying, uh, a huge reach for what people are call it, calling illiquidity risk premium. So you're seeing a lot of super funds in Australia and a lot of pension funds overseas all getting, in, getting into the business of direct lending. So either lending directly to businesses themselves or investing with managers that do direct loans. And these guys will say, oh, we're pick it, picking up an illiquidity risk premium. The problem is that risk premium is arguably the smallest it's ever been, and you're getting terrible compensation for risk. Um, let me put it another way. The world has more liquidity than it's ever seen before, and that's because the central banks have pumped markets full of huge amounts of liquidity. So if liquidity is as cheap as it's ever been before, um, as in you're getting um, the, the, the liquid risk premium is as, as low as we've ever seen, the same is absolutely yeah. true of the illiquidity risk premium. And the problem is that high-yield bonds, high-yield corporate bonds consistently behave like equities on the downside. So we've run analysis looking at the biggest um, or one of the main global high-yield bond indexes. And I'm just going to pull up the table. Um, and we look at the performance of the global high-yield bond market since, um, since uh, 2007. And we compare it to the Aussie share market. And I'll just read you out the numbers. So if you invested in global high yield, like many retail punters are being um, encouraged to do right now at arguably the worst possible time with the lowest spreads and um, the least compensation for illiquidity, uh, the return on global high yield was actually the same uh, since 2007 as Aussie shares, 5.8%, 5.8. The annual return volatility was very similar. So global high yield had 11% return volatility, uh, Aussie shares 13.5. The worst month recorded since 07 was minus 18% in global high yield versus minus 14% in Aussie shares. The worst peak to trough loss in global high yield was minus 42% versus minus 48% in global uh, in Aussie shares. So the bottom line is high yield is equity risk, in our view, mm -hmm. without much um, equity liquidity. So I am very, very 
nervous about reaching for yield by going into a liquid high-yield corporate bonds. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm very much on the thing, and I, I bang on quite often about the, the people who talk about their, you know, I've got a balanced portfolio, I've got a bunch of bank shares, I've got some bank hybrids, I've got some deposits at the same banks, and I've got a, you know, a housing market with, with that, that is, that's, that's all loaned from the same banks. And you're sort of like, yeah, you don't, you don't really have yeah, hybrids in particular, but, but that corporate debt market is, is not a... Um, uh, is not a diversifier of your equity portfolio. 100% with you there. Yeah, and and um, you, you, you guys guys may not specialise in this. Um, obviously, we we do very much specialise in um, these markets. But um, one thing that's interesting about that statement is it's not widely understood, even amongst our insta investors. People often talk about credit spreads and credit, so corporate bonds. So credit is corporate bonds. That's that's the kind of terminology. And the global corporate bond market is actually two very different markets. One is uh, one part of the market, roughly 55% of global credit is financial bonds issued by banks, non-banks and insurers. The other 45% of the market is corporate bonds. When you look at credit spreads, and if you see Mercer or any of these organizations do some research on credit spreads, most of the time they're using data that relate to uh, non-financial corporate bonds. And the data says what I just described. Oh my God, this place looks, you know, this sector looks heinously expensive. Mm-hmm. You've got more leverage than the GFC with lower spreads than, before, than you got before the GFC. <clears throat> Obviously, if you bought, you know, really cheap corporate bonds in 2009 when spreads were at all time highs, that, that was a great trade, but it's a terrible trade today. The same is absolutely. And, and, and as you said, you could have bought equities at, in, at that same time and made a, made a similar return anyway. So. Made a similar return and had much better liquidity, right? Yeah. Um, arguably, um, than high yield. Probably not you know, high-grade corporate, um, but, but certainly than high yield. What people don't understand is that the analysis as it pertains to financial bonds issued by banks, non-banks or insurers, is completely different. It's actually the opposite story. So if I go back to that chart I was talking about, um, I'm just going to bring it up, um, and we look at the credit spreads today that you earn on bank bonds versus what you got in 07. If I take CBA, in 2007, uh, for a senior AA-rated bond from CBA, you're earning uh, a spread of nine basis points or 0.09% above the bank bill rate or the cash rate. Um, today, you're earning about 75 over or 70, 0.75% over. On bank sub-debt, uh, back in 2007, you were earning uh, spread of 35 basis points over cash. Today, you're earning about 170 over cash. And, and sorry, is, is how much of that, though, was extreme mispricing in 2007 versus... Well, but the same mispricing applied to all corporate bonds and, and financial bonds. So, yep. um, you know, and, and equities, like housing, equities. I mean, we're all, all those asset classes were subject to the same dynamic. Um, but, my, but I think the key point to understand is, so on hybrids, for example, you're earning bank hybrids, you're earning 125 over, whereas today you're earning about 292 over. So actually financial credit, whether it's senior bonds, subordinated bonds or hybrid bonds, financial credit, and this is generally true around the world, looks actually incredibly cheap. So in, in senior bonds, which is our biggest portfolio position, you're earning um, on bank paper 8.3 times what you earn in 07. Now, when then you turn to bank business models, <clears throat> whilst corporates have increased leverage since 07 and they have more leverage today than they did in 07, the opposite has happened with the banks. So CBA's equity ratio in 2007 was 4.7%. Today, CBA's equity ratio is 12.2%. So we've seen a huge, and I've been a big advocate of this for a decade, but we saw, and, and David Llewellyn Smith, Macro Business, have also, I think, been on this trade, but we've seen 
uh, a massive reduction in bank leverage around the world and particularly in Australia. And you've seen a massive reduction in the uh, risk in bank business models. Um, and that's been terrible for bank shareholders. So back in 2015, I wrote in the AFR that I expected bank return on equities, uh, return on equity, so ROE to fall from 18 to 19% to their cost of equity around 11% because I, I was projecting a huge deleveraging of their balance sheets, which would crush their ROEs. Bad for equity, that's actually really good for bondholders and it's positive for bondholders. And I also predicted back in the AFR in 2015 that uh, you know the banks would go from two to three times book value to one to two times book value because of the compression in ROE towards their cost of equity around 11%. <clears throat> Today, that's exactly where we've landed. You know, ROE is around 10 to 12%. Uh, they're trading at one to two times book value. It's not been great for shareholders, but it's been really, really good for bank creditors. You mentioned hybrid spreads, and I agree with your point on concentration risk, which I'll come to in a second. But on hybrid spreads, major bank hybrids rated triple B minus, and they're today paying 290 over cash. Whereas in US triple B bonds, you're earning 129 over cash. So you're getting you know, almost circa um, 160 uh, basis points per annum, an extra spread on hybrids with the same rating as US corporate bonds. If you compare hybrids to US high yield, so with lower ratings, um, they're paying about 190 over versus, as I said, 290, 290 over on, on major bank hybrids. So you're earning 100 basis points per annum in extra spread on financial hybrids than what you get in, in high yield or junk. Uh, corporate bonds with a slightly lower rating. Um, that's not to say, which is where you were heading, that mums and dads should have all their portfolios in bank cash, bank hybrids, bank stocks. I completely agree. You know, for me, I'd be getting out of bank equities. I mean, I argued since 2015, and I'm not giving personal advice. To be clear, this is not financial advice. But let's let's go back in time. In 2015, I was arguing, get rid of your bank stocks, load up on bank bonds, um, diversify. Um, ignore you know corporate credit, government bonds yes, um, and cash well you know depending on the person their age and their risk aversion that may or may not have a role to play in your portfolio. Yeah. So actually, so just coming jumping back to that corporate bonds for a minute. Um, so the corporate, the, I, I often just use the you know it's a, it's a relatively raw uh, statistic, but you know uh, corporate total corporate debt compared to GDP, and, and it's sort of you start you know, 40% or a little bit below at the bottom of the cycle and it sort of, once it gets closer to 50, it seems to be the top of the cycle and then there's a recession and then um, the whole thing starts again. We're, um, we're starting to um, to get pretty high on that measure at the moment. I, I guess if, how concerned are you about um, corporate debt sort of rolling over at some stage in the, in the next sort of year or two? Um, well, I've got a kind of schizophrenic or polarised view on this. So I agree with everything you just said, first point. Second point, like we don't have any corporate exposure in our portfolio at all. We're 100% financials. I, in yep. my portfolios across the four and a half bill I run, I can invest in as much corporate as I want and as much financial as I want. Um, but we choose to be in financials because the business models are much more, uh, you know, massively de-risked. Um, but, you know, beyond the, the deleveraging I mentioned, the banks have also got out of a lot of risky activity. So ANZ out of Asia, NAB out of the UK, they're selling off their financial advice businesses and they're becoming boring utility like savings and loan entities. Again, great for creditors, terrible for shareholders. <clears throat> Having said that, um, and notwithstanding our views on you know, potentially a long-term inflationary cycle and potentially a long-term uh, cataclysmic event where you have a huge resetting of discount rates that will force the value of all assets radically lower. I think for the time, you know, we've all got to make money in the interim. And for the time being, I think you don't want to fight the central banks. I think 
we saw this with the the jump in short-term funding costs in the US late last year in the so-called repo market. <clears throat> Everyone was freaking out about this this spike in in short-term cash rates in the US saying, "Oh, you know, the system's going to blow up." But actually the Fed just came in and pumped in the liquidity and it was all over red rubber. Um, I think the next crisis will be a subprime corporate bond slash subprime corporate loan crisis. I think it's kind of the last place on earth you want to be in right now. Um, so I think you should have risk in your portfolio. Um, again, this is not personal advice, please. This is you know, not for retail. Yeah. I'm just going to put that disclaimer. Um, but, uh, but you know, I, I, we prefer to express that risk through cheap uh, you know, bank credit um, in our fixed income portfolios. Um, I was very negative on RMBS, residential mortgage-backed securities, uh, when we, uh, at the start of 2017, said the housing boom was over and house prices would fall 10%. Uh, we sold 400 million bucks of RMBS um, and we were trying to get short. Um, and uh, when in April last year we said the housing bust is over, house prices were still falling at that point in time and that prices would rise 10%. We were the first analysts in the market to call both parts of that cycle. Um we jumped back into RMBS and I've put about 750 mil back into um, really high-grade liquid AAA-rated RMBS um, because the lending standards are much more conservative, um, default rates are starting to fall, and obviously collateral, which protects RMBS, is now increasing in value rather than shrinking in value. So I think there are parts – the world is awash with heinously expensive assets, but there are subsectors that look interesting on a tactical short-term basis. I think the most important thing is liquidity. I think mm. you want to be really liquid – um, such that you can divest everything and get short um, before this eventual cataclysm arrives. So in my portfolios, I either want to go 100% cash and hedge out any credit risk or I want to get you know 200% net short if I can in different products um, just before this inflation-induced resetting of long-term discount rates, which, as I said, could be three to 10 years away. Um, mm. It's kind of like the- Actually, actually just on the corporate though, the the corona coronavirus could this be a, mm. a trigger for some of these zombie companies to actually start defaulting if they start if they lose parts of their supply chain for you know months months at a time? Mm. Uh, yeah, 100%. I don't have a, a strong view on coronavirus. Um, I was at a conference yesterday and I heard people argue very strongly that this was the the butterfly effect that would effectively trigger uh, the next major global meltdown. And then I heard a lot of folks who were basically fading corona. The market's been fading corona. Uh, we're very respectful of market pricing. On the other hand, markets make mistakes. And one of the things that worries us about markets is the huge rise in passive investing where if you're investing passively or in an index fund, you don't um, care. You, you're, you're price agnostic, you're valuation independent. You actually are just – it's a huge momentum trade. You know, the the, the higher the, the uh, price of the stock rises and the greater its weight in the index, the more you're forced to buy of it. And unfortunately mm. – more and more in the world is moving to this price-independent investing where they're ignoring fundamentals and they're just on this big momi trade. And what that then in turn does is it undermines the price signals in markets. So we need to be respectful of markets. I'm, I don't have a view on Corona, but yes, it could be. It could definitely be a massive harbinger of problems for uh, zombies. Uh, equally, the Chinese President Xi is a strongman president, um, and uh, you know he could come out with you know the mother of all. Uh, stimulatory measures to the extent he can still afford to do so, uh, and that could compensate. I, I just don't have a view. I, I mean, we're, we're trying to understand it, um, mm. but in the meantime, we're staying liquid um, in really high-grade AA-rated paper um, that that is giving us good returns from our trading alpha, uh, but but also protects us on the downside.
It sounds like good advice. Okay, aware of your time, I just want to. I know we'd spoken briefly about giving you a little bit of a soapbox to talk about the LITs and LICs. Um, sure. I don't know whether you want to. Uh, if you've got enough time to, to give us a quick two minutes on that. Yeah, hundred percent. So basically, I mean, to be clear, I'm. I haven't got a problem with listed investment companies and listed investment trusts. These are entities that are listed on the ASX, and there are many great managers that offer them. Uh, you know, my mum invests with Metrics, which offers, uh, uh, you know, LITs, and um, they can be a great solution. Um, what I do have a problem with, and this has been a very consistent problem that I've argued about since 2014, is um, in 2012, uh, everyone in Australia sort of coalesced around this idea that when a financial advisor is advising a retail mum and dad investor, that advisor should be paid by their client like an accountant or a lawyer, and that advisor should not get sales commissions from fund managers to push the fund's products to the retail client. So we introduced these laws called the Future of Financial Advice Laws that were legislated and they banned sales commissions from fund managers to advisors. Yeah. And, that and, had, and in the vernacular, effectively, no, no more kickbacks. Hmm. But for, and that's, that's had a profoundly positive impact on the advice community. So when I go and meet financial advisors, they rip me a new asshole. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to crush my fees. They're, they're just rapaciously and relentlessly defending their clients' interests, which is wonderful. That's what you want, right? And you want fund managers to only win on merit, not because they're paying, uh, they're effectively bribing the advisor to push their product. Um, unfortunately, for some bizarre reason, the coalition in, two years later in 2014, very subtly in a list of changes to FOFA, uh, shoehorned in this change that said that an any listed investment entity would be exempted from FOFA's um, ban on commissions. And what that meant was, and I didn't notice it at the time, to be honest, even though I'd argued furiously in 2014 that advisors shouldn't uh, receive conflicted um, uh, commissions. And what that has meant has been that we've had this explosion in fund managers um, using commissions to raise money through these listed entities. And the value of the LIC and LIT sector on the ASX has more than doubled in size to $52 billion. And fund managers have now paid since 2016 on our numbers about $440 million in commissions to advisors. Now, the Treasury, um, when does this go to the air, guys? How quickly are you putting this online? Thursday. Uh, Thursday. Okay. All right. Well, if you work really quickly uh, and you're listening to this, you can actually go to the Commonwealth Treasury's website and put a submission in. Um, the, technically, the submission is closed on the 20th, which is uh, what, tomorrow. What, tomorrow, yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm sure if you put one in uh, quickly, uh, they'd accept it. Um, if this is important to you, if you, if you want to see advisors uh, prevented from taking kickbacks and fund managers prevented from paying them. And, and what is also concerning is that we're not seeing, it's not like they're listing cash funds. You know, we're seeing a proliferation of complex leveraged hedge funds, a proliferation of global high yield funds or junk bond funds. And we're yeah. starting to also see these junk bond funds that are levered. So, you know, recently we had a two times um, levered junk bond fund that raised, you know, I think $650 million or thereabouts um, on the ASX, another levered junk bond fund from KKR uh, that raised $925 million in, in days. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's trade to blow NTA for most of the time it's been on the ASX. It listed at $250. Um, it's traded as low as $241 uh, right now. It's terrific for KKR, though. Okay. <laughs> terrific for KKR, though. Yeah, and the fees are very high. Um it's not that I have a problem with high fees because I charge high fees. Um, but yeah, so right now it's trading two forty seven listed in November. 
So, you know, and that's that's a uh, global junk bond fund. Um, great manager. They're amazing, you know, investors. But I'd rather mums and dads selected that product on its merits from an advisor who wasn't being paid, you know, 1%, 2% or 3% to push it to them. Uh, yeah. you, you think about and, and a bunch of, of advisors will come out and say, oh, yeah, but I'm, I'm sticking my money in, uh, you know, AFIC or Argo or one of these lower risk ones and I give the commissions back. But I guess the thing is just because, um, you know, yeah, you, you don't just because you're not doing the wrong thing doesn't mean that, 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 uh, that there aren't plenty of other shonks out there who are actually getting out and pushing people into the higher risk ones and, and taking the huge commissions. It's just, I mean, I, we know for a fact that like most of these guys nobody's ever heard of. And mm. if you tried to raise 925 million through retail channels, through FOFA channels where you can't pay commissions, that would probably take five or 10 years. And yeah, they're doing mm. it in days. We also know Morningstar did a survey uh, which found about uh, 80% of advisors are opposed, opposed to this. Uh, 80 to 90% of investors are opposed to this. I think 65% of advisors said they couldn't act in their client's best interest if they took a commission. Um, mm. So the evidence is overwhelming. And you know, my proposal has been simply, it's not because I'm conflicted, like my biggest shareholder is a big provider of these LICs and LITs. We run the fastest growing active ETF on the ASX, uh, Beta Shares' uh, HBID product, product, which is a, a full capital structure ETF, and we've raised over $700 million of that um, in the listed market. So we can raise listed market uh, money easily. Um, I've been offered the opportunity repeatedly to do LICs. Uh, some of the vested interests are saying, oh, I tried to get an LIC off the ground and it failed, um, and that's why I'm against this absolute BS uh, only, only in December, we were offered the opportunity to do an LIC by one of the top brokers in Australia, and we have a proven ability to raise listed capital. I just don't want the advice industry contaminated with this, and I don't want the funds management industry polluted by it, because what will happen is we'll all be forced to, onto the ASX to raise money, we'll all be forced to pay these commissions, and then mm. the advisors taking the kickbacks will be able to offer lower um, fees to their clients, which will then force the ethical advisors to take commissions. So it's just horrible. We need these commissions gone. So again, if you mind it, just put a one to two page submission into Treasury. You can do that um, on the Treasury's website. Just look for um, the words, uh, just Google stamping fee exemption Treasury. We'll put it in the show notes for yeah, you. Yeah, show notes. But, but the other point for me is that I, I agree that listed investment companies have got there's about there's a few different ways you can put things through an exchange traded fund you can put things through a listed investment company you can put things through separately managed accounts or, or unit trusts they've all got their pluses and minuses but you can end up as you said everything coalesces towards uh, listed investment companies that aren't aren't actually that good of a vehicle for investors in liquid if, if you've got liquid underlying they're actually yeah. quite good for for non liquid underlying but for liquid underlying you're actually much better off the investor's much better off in an ETF or or a separately managed account or, or yeah and the reason actually- the reason that's the case is what we haven't probably explained is that with a listed investment company or a listed investment trust they often uh, the price of the vehicle often trades significantly um, away from its net tangible assets so it's very common I think seventy five percent of all LICs and LITs trade at a discount to their value or their NTA. And the typical discount is seven to nine percent. What that means is, if you buy it a hundred bucks, um, you know you may only get uh, you know ninety two bucks for it in the in the mm-hmm. secondary market. And we've seen that consistently, even last year with some of the big LRTs that I've listed, they're trading at circa ten percent below NTA. Um, I think, having said that, if you can pick them up cheap, uh, so if you can buy something at eighty cents in the dollar. Uh, mm-hmm. And you think it's going to go back to a buck? That's an opportunity. So I think LICs and LITs have a role to play for really sophisticated investors. On the illiquid asset point, the only comment I'd make is the problem with illiquid assets is when they're illiquid, they're hard to value. You don't actually know what the price is because they're not trading. And the history of illiquid LICs has been and LITs has been 
that they've ended up blowing up. So we saw this with Dixon's uh, US Residential Masters Fund. That's an LIT. It holds US residential properties and it's traded a massive 50% plus discount to its value or NTA um, mm. because nobody knows what the assets are worth. We also saw prior to the GFC a lot of um, high-yielding debt LICs and LITs, uh, Orco Max, Adelaide Yield Trust. I think there was something from Hastings and they all blew up because they invested in high-yield bonds that um, weren't valued properly. And then when they were valued properly, there was a massive markdown on the NTA and investors lost trust. So the value of a liquid LIC LLT or an LIC LLT investing in shares is at least you know what the NTA is because you can see the shares trading on this exchange. When you're investing in global high-yield bonds, nobody knows what those things are actually worth. So the, you know, the manager might say NTA is X, but NTA could be a lot less than X. Um, do, do you want to just um, give a recap to our listeners of uh, the best ways to follow your work, Chris? For sure, for sure. So um, we run something called the Complexity Premier Podcast. It's available on iTunes and Podbean. Uh, so that's Complexity Premier. Uh, you can get me on Twitter, at uh, C-J-O-Y-E. Uh, our corporate website is coolabarcapital.com. That's C-O-O-L-A-B-A-H, capital.com. Uh, and I'm obviously on, I post quite a lot to LinkedIn. But hey, guys, I love your work, love the podcast. I'm a regular listener, and I want to really thank you for the opportunity to engage because um, uh, you know, we, we learn a lot listening from you as well. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Chris. Well, look forward Appreciate to getting you on again soon, mate. We'll talk soon. See you, guys. So, Damien, a terrific 55-odd minutes there spent with a wealth of information in the global bond market and trends. And Chris Joy, what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, um, I must admit I'm probably uh, in, in more agreeance with, with some of Chris's thoughts uh, than, than I thought I would be going into it. I think there's, there's certainly there's – let me go through the things I think that uh, we're on the same page on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think certainly staying liquid at the moment is, is very important. As you said, we're, we're reaching this end of the cycle, corporate's – exposed you know we're, we're looking for what's going to cause the end of this current cycle and so staying liquid is, is very important making sure you can see the exit door <laughs> exactly um uh corporate bonds i think there's a uh you know some of his thoughts in terms of that is sort of uh, very much uh, mirrors my own thinking is you are pretty much getting a, a similar exposure to equities um at this point in the cycle you just don't need that that um that exposure mm-hmm. and so and and, and not just for the liquidity reasons, but the liquidity reasons is a pretty big one in that if, if something changes, um, you can get out of your equities pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, your corporate bonds, you can often be locked up or, or just not be able to trade them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think the other – probably the, the main um, point for our investors that I think is different to what, what Chris is saying is around this whole fixed versus floating issue. And, and the main thing there is that um, – if you go with fixed, if you go with floating rate bonds within your portfolio, um, that, that they are beneficial for giving you a um, for giving you returns in terms of your, your income, um, very low returns at the moment. But but you know you can get a you're only getting very low returns everywhere. Mm. But but I guess what my main contention is, if you're holding bonds in your portfolio across a broader diversified asset allocation, because you're worried that there might be a big event, say a coronavirus um, explodes and, and gets out to the rest of the world, or you do have a big corporate bond default in a, in a quick period of time, is and um, and so inflation isn't a worry. You want something in your portfolio that's going to lift mm-hmm. at that point in time. The floating rate bonds are not going to do that, or the very the, the movement is going to be very very small right. um, in terms of your corporate one because you, it all comes through in the income. Yep. Whereas your fixed rate bonds are the ones that are going to increase. So mm. I guess I, I very much look at the portfolio of, of bonds that we run, and we run sort of a, a strategic version, which is saying, okay, that needs to be in the portfolio 
as insurance for for if these bad events happen. Yep. And then outside that, now I'm happier to you know when I'm going in and out of bonds, I'm hap- much happier to say, do I want floating rate or do I want inflation adjusted bonds or or do we want to get fixed bonds mm-hmm. and how long of a duration that part. Um, you know, I'm with Chris on terms of that. That's but the alpha component, essentially, of the bond portfolio. Exactly. Yep. Whereas I think there is for uh, for most uh, retail investors and most people investing in their own name, you, you need this strategic part of your bond portfolio that's going to protect you in in those cases. And as Chris said, it's it's not going to it's not going to always protect you. Mm. But I think the types of events we're certainly looking at at the moment, an end of cycle event, and whether it be corporate bonds, coronavirus, um, you know, pick your pick your um, disaster disaster, your shock. Yeah. yeah, is that you do want that that side of it. Uh, the other thing comes back to this inflation, and I think Chris is right. Three to ten years. Look, who, who knows? I think that's that's as good a guess as any, and I think that's probably not dissimilar to our view in terms of saying uh, inflation um, is is your biggest enemy mm-hmm. that you need to watch for. I just don't think it's the enemy for the next three years. Mm. Um, and and there is this probably this end of cycle shock before we get there. And and my personal view is you, you're going to need to really see some some big fiscal um, stimulus. You are seeing a bit of that in in the US, which is why, as Chris was saying, you know that's where you're seeing the wage growth. Yep. Um, we're not really seeing that elsewhere, and certainly not in Australia. We're mm. not seeing that. And so, um, yeah, I think we'll probably. Um, we probably could have spent a lot of time, a lot more time there, debating about the uh, the benefits of um, of wage growth and and uh, whether it's uh, immigrants or, or where it's coming from and technology. Yep. Um, but I think it's it's certainly safe to say that's. I don't think anyone's got the um, anyone. Nobody knows for sure what the right answer is, but we know that um, government spending is is one thing that's going to drive that, and the next that um, you know whether we're talking about. Um, uh, Countries headed down the Japan path, mm. or whether they're managing managing to avoid it, if you're only using monetary policy, is um is 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 a bit more up for debate. I guess what I'm sorry. Let me let me let me rephrase that. I think if 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 monetary policy is the only tool that's being used, I think all countries are headed down the Japan path, yep. regardless of demographics. Sure. Um. Uh, whereas I think if if you start seeing some big fiscal spends. That's when you will see inflation. Yep. And so we're waiting until we actually start seeing the the big fiscal spends before we start worrying about inflation as as our as our as a next concern or a deficit friendly federal government. <laughs> that's well. That's right. <laughs> Very good. All right. On that note. Well, that's it for now, and thanks for watching. If you like what you heard today, and you'd like to hear more, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash subscribe. Give us your email address and in return we'll send you a weekly email with new webinar topics, links for our podcasts and other news from Nucleus Wealth. I certainly hope you've got something out of today as I have and we'll look forward to catching you with the next one. Cheers.